reading for this morning. Now, the first one comes from Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And I have read this several times, but I still stumble in the name, so you will just uh, please forgive me. Um, but the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May we give our attention to it. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Eudea and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contented on my, or at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not, let do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. And now for our Old Testament reading from the book of Zephaniah. The sermon text this morning will actually come only from verses 14 and following, but we'll read the chapter in its entirety for context. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are arrogant. They are treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does not know wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice. And every new day, he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. I have cut off nations. Their strongholds are demolished. I have left their streets deserted with no one passing through. Their cities are destroyed. No one will be left. No one at all. I said to the city, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling would not be cut off, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. 
The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Then will I purify the lips of the peoples, that, on all, that, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. On that day you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and humble who trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemies. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The sorrows for the appointed feasts I will remove from you. They are a burden and a reproach to you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppress you. I will rescue the lame and gather those who have been scattered. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Please pray with me once more. Our God, we come before you and we ask that you would use your servant in a mighty way to declare your word, to make your word known among the nations. We ask God that you would use it to increase our faith, help us to know and believe and trust more and more in you and your word. All this we pray in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior's name. Amen. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Rejoice. Rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee. These are the words of that wonderful and glorious Advent hymn that we just finished singing this morning. I think it's easy for us to think, you know, what a lovely song, and to leave it at that. But in this hymn, 
a hymn that is intentionally used during the Advent season when we are called to watch and wait for the coming of Christ, to prepare ourselves to repent, to take stock of our lives. In this hymn, we are intentionally called to rejoice. More than that, we are commanded to rejoice. For Emmanuel has come. He has set foot upon the earth. Therefore, rejoice. But what does that look like? What would it look like to rejoice in such a way that appropriately understands that Emmanuel has come in the incarnation? What does it look like? What does it mean to have sheer delight in something this wonderful? I mean, perhaps even to lose control of our prim and proper and composed dispositions and be overwhelmed with the joy at the coming of our Savior. I think we can understand this type of rejoicing, at least intellectually speaking. I mean, even if we don't show it on our faces, uh, we see it at weddings. Uh, We see it and understand this rejoicing at the birth of a child, where the only emotions that we experience is one of joy. Or perhaps, I think the one that gets out at the best is seeing the delight of a small child on Christmas Day. Uh, Especially before they're old enough to learn that they're supposed to control their emotions. Just the sheer rapture and delight that reminds us how prudish we are in our own displays of joy. I think perhaps the uh, only place that pictures this sheer joy and delight for adults uh, is at a football game or at least at a sporting event where it's encouraged to uh, display your uncontained and uh, intentionally uncontrolled emotion of joy and sorrow. You know it's the only place where full-grown men are encouraged to rip off their shirts and scream and whoop for joy. And the only place where it's not questionable for a man to cry over a serious loss. What is pure rejoicing? Why is it that during this season of Advent that we are called especially to rejoice? I think many of us already know the answer to that question, that the gospel is the reason For our rejoicing, the fact that Christ became man and lived and died and condemned in our place and rose again is the reason we celebrate his advent here on earth, his coming. But does that good news still stir us to truly rejoice? Or has that good news grown cold to us? Has it become old hat Has it just become some old news that instead of causing us to rejoice unashamedly, we fear? We fear what other men might think if they knew what we believed about Jesus Christ. We fear the events that transpire in this world, the political situations that unravel. Have we forgotten how good the good news really is? That is my question this morning for you. Surely it is easy 
to forget, for we are indeed forgetful creatures prone to wandering of various kinds. And yet in our text before us, we are called as the people of God to rejoice, for God is with us in our midst. And this morning, as we begin looking at Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20, the first thing we need to see to understand this command to rejoice is the all-encompassing destruction. The all-encompassing destruction. As we drop into Zephaniah here, uh, out of nowhere seemingly, uh, it's probably the, one of the more difficult parts about doing these uh, topical studies is coming in without any context. But as you start at the end of the book, if you start at the end of the book, if you read only chapter 3, verses 14 through 20, it's difficult to get a sense of why this call to rejoice is so important. And that's because the context of Zephaniah is a whole book. It's a short book. You can read it in several minutes. Really sets the stage for these last glorious verses. It creates a major and extreme contrast In fact, there's such a sharp contrast between the beginning and the end that uh, Zephaniah has been argued. Uh, There are two authors here that it's, it's so difficult to understand that this destruction, this utter and complete destruction at the beginning, and then this utter and complete rejoicing are within the same book. And yet, the ending, the rejoicing, means nothing without the beginning. No news is good news without the existence of bad news first. Hearing the words, your cancer is in remission, means nothing to us. If we haven't heard the words first, the cancer is spreading, and it doesn't look good. Just try to imagine the the story of the Lord of the Rings, for example. Just try to imagine beginning at the end of the story where Aragorn is crowned king, and then they live happily ever after. It makes no sense. It brings no delight. It means nothing to us if we haven't first seen the destruction and the power of Sauron and this ring of power. If the whole journey through Middle-earth wasn't shown to us, the good news at the end means nothing. So as we enter into Zephaniah very quickly, we encounter one of the harshest judgments in all of Scripture, I mean, the very second verse of chapter 1, the very first words from the Lord through the mouth of Zephaniah are these, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I mean, it is possible, is it possible to have a more severe judgment than this? It doesn't get any stronger than this language. Verse 3, I will sweep away man and beast the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is an utter, complete destruction. It is an undoing, you'll notice, of the creation account. Everything that God created and was good, he is undoing, and it will be destroyed, and it will be swift, and it will be terrible. This is destruction greater even than the flood itself. Where only eight living souls and two animals of each kind escaped a cataclysmic judgment. Here, everything will be undone. Nothing will remain. God stretches out his hand and he calls his creation to account. 
He undoes his world, even calling Judah and Jerusalem to account. No stone is left unturned in this judgment. Verses 18, the whole earth will be consumed because of verse 17, the sin of mankind. You begin to see how God, in fact, turns over every stone in this judgment as you move into chapter 2, especially, where God begins to call every nation into account. The Lord of hosts, who comes with his army at his back, begins to call woe upon all the nations that surround Israel especially. He begins to circle around Israel like a lion circling his prey. He says, Gaza will be deserted. Ashkelon shall be desolate. Ashdod's people driven out. Elklon uprooted. The whole seacoast will be destroyed. The Philistines destroyed. Moab, Ammon, Cush, Assyria, all the great powers of the day. Egypt and Assyria, Babylon, they will all be wiped away in this destruction. Not one will remain. They will, be, they will be so destroyed that verses 14 and 15 in chapter 2 tell us that wild beasts will become the inhabitants of the capital city. Hedgehogs, owls, all kinds of beasts will live in them, for they will become a byway. And as chapter 2 wraps up as this roaring lion has encircled his prey, devouring all the nations around Israel one at a time, you begin to wonder, what will this lion do to Israel? Is his belly satisfied with the destruction laid? Is he here to lay waste to Israel, or is he here to protect her? But chapter 3 shows the Lord not protecting Jerusalem, but assailing her. The opening begins and destruction moves very quickly into Israel's gates. Verses 3-1, chapter 3, verse 1. Look at Israel's sinful ways. She doesn't trust. She doesn't accept correction. Verse 3, her judges are treacherous. Her prophets fickle. Her priests profane the holy. Her leaders from beginning to end fail me at every level. Even... The destruction of the nations all around her taught her nothing. Verses 6 and 7. I said, surely since I've laid waste to the nations on all sides, surely you will accept correction. But instead, all the more eagerly, all the more eagerly, you ran to deeds of corruption. It didn't teach you anything. Instead, you reveled in your sins more so before my eyes. You committed adultery in my very presence. Therefore, verse 8, wait for me. Wait for that day when I will rise up and seize the prey. This is the lion going in for the kill that he is speaking about coming. This is not a good thing that God is coming near to Israel All his burning anger and indignation are being poured out here. Here is the Lion of Judah ready to come and to devour. And suddenly a shift takes place in the text. In the midst of this promised destruction in chapter 3, the people of God are suddenly called to rejoice. To rejoice. As you move through chapter 3, clearly some change is taking place. No longer is God's wrath burning against Israel. Something has shifted. 
It's not exactly clear what has happened. The text is silent, strangely, about how the change happens. But regardless, something changes. But the question is, why? What has changed in Israel? Why does God suddenly favor them? What have they done to incur God's good pleasure now? If anything, in verses 9 through 13, it's only amplified that Israel has not changed. They haven't done anything differently to make themselves more acceptable to God. To make themselves more pleasing to him. They have done nothing. God does everything here in this section. He is the primary mover in this text. His disposition changes towards Israel, but that change is not because of some inherent virtue in the people. This change is out of the hands of the people. They do nothing, and God says, I will make their speech pure, and they will call on me and offer pleasing sacrifices to me. I will not put them to shame because of their deeds which they rebelled against me. Notice Israel really hasn't changed. He even calls them here rebellious and wicked in verse 11. Even in verse 17 or 14 and following, God is the primary actor here. God clears away our enemies. God takes away our judgments. God has spoken. And God has declared that he will not shame his people. He will leave them humbled and they will be changed. So much so that because of God's word, we will speak no lies. We will lie down and no longer be afraid. Peace beyond all understanding suddenly takes over. And the people of God are called to rejoice. Verse 14 gets very emphatic on this particular point. Notice the repetition Cry aloud, raise a shout, rejoice, exult from the heart. You hear that repeated again and again. Raise a voice in praise. This is an all-in praise and rejoicing. You cannot be prudish with this kind of praise. There is no place for dignity in this kind of exuberance and praise of our God. This is the picture of the prodigal son returning home and how that father, this dignified older gentleman, an elderly statesman, lost all sense of composure when he sees his son far off returning home in repentance. And the man girds up his garments and he runs out to meet him. Now, just think about that for a second. When is the last time you saw an older man run? Running intentionally like this. Older gentlemen don't run. They walk, maybe quickly, but they walk because there's nothing dignified about watching an older man running. Uh, you know, this man lifts up his skirts and he's showing all of, for all to see his saggy, baggy skin, and he's running as fast as his legs can carry him to embrace his son. This man is throwing off all restraint for the love of his son. And when he gets there, he doesn't care that his son is a full-grown man, but he begins to embrace him and cry in delight over him. That's what's going on here. That's that kind of unrestrained rejoicing. This is David coming before the Ark of the Covenant, dancing before the Lord. What does he tell Michael, his wife, that I will become even more undignified than this in my rejoicing before the Lord? Rejoice. Why? 
Because you have a reason to rejoice. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Again, the text doesn't tell us why or how, but it tells us that God has done something. His actions matter here, not ours. All those things promised to the whole of creation, to all the rest of the nations, that judgment hanging in the air, it will not fall on you. Those judgments are gone. You stand cleared of all charges before him. Not only that, he has cleared all your enemies from before you. No longer do your enemies gather against you. Sin and death and the devil himself have no power over you here anymore. None remain before you. So rejoice. Praise God for the king of all creation is in your midst. Notice that language. God is with us. Emmanuel. Notice how only a few Verses ago, it was terrible news that God was coming. And now he says, rejoice, for God is with us. You have nothing to fear. Again, verse 17, the Lord is in your midst, a mighty one to save you. We are given this picture of a mighty warrior going out to do battle for us. This is how David Uh, How you think of David and his battle with Goliath representing all of Israel. He was the mighty one standing ready to save a people. And God says, therefore, again, rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel, God is with us. Notice, dear Christians, what we are celebrating when God has come into our midst. This before us is what is at the heart of Advent. In the words of my former pastor, says the picture of celebration before us is it's not a cute, sentimental picture of a baby in a manger, but we celebrate that God has arrived for us as our King and Savior. He has come to us in human flesh. He is with us and finally The long-awaited king and judge and warrior is here. He has cleared away the judgment against us. He has come as our warrior king and clears the enemies all away. Therefore, do not be afraid. Rejoice. Notice how these two concepts go hand in hand. They are always right or read together in this text. And it's fitting that they do so. For what keeps us from celebrating with the joy of a child. What keeps us from being overwhelmed with joy? The fear that we will appear foolish, isn't it? That we will seem foolish to others, that we will not quite seem the man anymore. What keeps a woman from running to meet her true love or show affection publicly, even though they've been separated for a long period of time, The fear of being ridiculed, the fear of appearing silly and ridiculous. But God says, you have nothing to fear. Rejoice. I know what fears you have in this world. Don't pretend like I don't understand this world. I am the one who created. I know what worries you. 
I know what anxieties you carry and you face, but they pale in comparison to my goodness and love to you. It doesn't matter what the world economy looks like at the moment. It doesn't matter whether a Republican or Democrat is the governor or uh, president of the states. I know how much debt you owe to others around you. But these realities, these troubles, whatever it is you are facing, pale in comparison to my love for you. Don't you see, people of God, my love for you is more real, get that, more real, more tangible than what you see with your eyes or hear with your ears. My love for you is more real than the very ground that you walk upon. It is more tangible than whatever problem you may be facing in this world. I have spoken good over you. You need not live in fear anymore. And yet that is often what we do. We often live in fear, afraid of what others might think if they knew we believed Jesus Christ is a real person who walked upon the earth and now sits reigning supreme over all things. We're afraid to sing praises boldly to our God because someone might hear that our voice is not so lovely. We refuse to rejoice. We become prudish in our love for God because we fail to see beyond our immediate circumstances that are around us and, for, and to know a reality that is far deeper than this ever-fading world. We fail to see beyond any shadow of a doubt that the Son of God became incarnate. He took on flesh to free his people from the bondage of sin that so easily entangles us. We fail to see that God reigns over all the earth, that he is our God and we are his people. And we fail to live in like that is true. Like it shapes everything that we are. We prefer to listen to the news and say, what a terrible world that we live in. It can't get any worse, can it? We fail to see what the good news is, and that is it is indeed good news. And yet, yet despite our fears and our failings, God calls us to rejoice in him, even, even as God himself rejoices over us. This is our third point this morning, God's rejoicing, God's Rejoicing. As we consider God's impending judgment over his creation, as we consider our own failings to live or leave our fears and freely rejoice in the goodness of God, I think we come now to the most difficult concept to comprehend because it is simply not logical to us. <laughs> it makes no sense to us, we simply struggle to comprehend it. God is king, we get that. We are to rejoice at his mercy. Again, we can understand that. But this text lies, uh, in this text lies something far greater than either of those two realities. And that is that God himself rejoices over us. Notice verse 17. The Lord is in our midst, and he rejoices over you with gladness. 
He rejoices over you with gladness? Why? What have we done? Why have we earned this? This is exactly the point, isn't it? I mean, that's the reason the text has been silent on these particular matters. God doesn't rejoice over you because of something that you've done. God doesn't rejoice over you because somehow you are worthy of it. We haven't done anything good. The church of God doesn't, does nothing in this text but, God's, but receive God's goodness and mercy and deliverance. We have only rebelled against him. We've only done wickedness, and yet here, the creator of the universe is saying, I rejoice over you. My love for you is undignified. I will be more undignified than this in my love for you. I know it makes no sense to you, but I don't care. Who knows that I love you? It's not a secret love that God, uh, but God, in fact, declares it from the mountaintops. He will quiet you with his love. And he will exult over you with loud singing. Just try to imagine that for a second. I mean, first off, you can picture, you know, that foolish person singing with all their mic at karaoke to uh, his love or his bride. You, you know that he's singing loudly, and he knows it too. He's a little off key. He's dancing around. But he doesn't care what you think because he's singing for her. Your opinion doesn't matter to him. Here, the God of the universe is singing loudly. This is the God who, when he spoke, the worlds were created. What happens when he sings for joy over you, O people of God? He rejoices over you, and everything in creation will know his unfailing and unstoppable and uncontainable love. The text says he will gather those of you who mourn. I will gather you under my wings like a bird gathers her chicks. I will transform you, you who are lame, you who are the outcast, you who are the unlovely. Notice how unfit these ones are. How unfit for society they are. The ones who have been cast outside, these are lepers. These are horrible. In the eyes of society, these are the worst of the worst. These are the tax collectors and the sinners. And he says, I will gather you, you who are unfit, who do not belong, who the rest of the world scorns for your foolishness. You who feel as though you've never belonged. You who have felt shame all your life, I will gather you together and sing praises over you. Well, pastor, those things sound great and wonderful, but truly, how can these things be? What can we do to make God love us? Surely you're missing something in the text here. But that's the beauty of the incarnation, isn't it? I mean, how can these things be? How can God love us like this? And it's because a little child was born in low estate because he bore those judgments that were meant for us in his very flesh that he took upon himself because he faced every enemy of God for you and he overcame them all. It's done. The debt is paid. The lame shall walk. The blind shall see. The mute shall speak because God came down and dwelt with us and lived with us and died for us. He cried on that cross, it is 
finished. But pastor, is there anything for us left to do? And I answer that question cautiously because too many times we're looking for the hook. Where's the catch? Nothing that is good in this world really is free, is it? We live in a world where we hear the word free and we immediately become suspicious and say, no such thing, what's it going to cost me? We still want to know what must I do to inherit eternal life? But truly, the scripture tells us, believe Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It costs you nothing because it cost him everything. He took that penalty. He took the entry fee. The good news really is that good. And yet one thing does remain for us to do. Rejoice. Rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. People of God, you have no need to fear for perfect love. The love of God for his people displayed in Christ casts out fear. Do you see it? Pastor, I have cancer. You don't know what terrors my kids are. You can't imagine what I'm going through. You don't know my financial troubles. Rejoice. Rejoice. And again, I say Rejoice. People of God, Israel will go into exile 30 years from here after hearing this news, after being called to rejoice amidst whatever suffering they go to, and they are cast from the the land. People of God believe that the good news of the gospel is good. It is so good that no matter what we face, no matter what trials may come, that we know God is with us, not because we earned it, Not because we improved ourselves so much, but because God rejoices over you, whom he bought for a price. Does anything else matter after that? People of God, you know the end of the story. You know, it's right here before you. May we live our lives in light of the end. May it inform how we understand the middle. May it control all that we do. I mean, it's like that hymn that we know. Let this blessed assurance control. For Christ has regarded my helpless estate, and he shed his own blood for my soul. People of God, the news, the gospel, the good news, it is always and forever good news for the people of God, because God is with us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we praise you for your wisdom, your insight, your magnificence, for your seeking out a people and drawing them unto yourself and setting your love upon us, a love that is difficult for us to comprehend, nay, that we will never comprehend the depths of. Father, we pray that you would cause us to believe grow our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. May it inform everything that we say and do. For, Lord, truly, we pray that you would cause us to rejoice greatly in our lives, cause us to live in obedience unto you, knowing that that is a rejoicing unto you. Lord, we pray that you would turn our eyes to the heavens, 
from where our help comes from, even in this time and this season, when we are looking down to earth where you have come and dwell with man. We thank you and we praise you for Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And in his name we pray. Amen.